0: By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valibeitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Hi, friends. Hi, friends. Um, happy Tuesday. Um, I'm going to start with a Nigun a little melody for those who want to um for those who are still joining in here here we go
1: la uh-huh. It ere ere and I Join me, and I, and I, and I, and I, and I, I, and 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 I, 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 it more I die I, I, die bum yambambirai andai dirai dai I i die dai dai die, dai die It Shalom,
0: shalom, holy khavra. Thanks for joining the Nigoon with me. Nice to see you all. Uh, I can't see you all, but I can see a lot of you and I can see your names at the least. So it's great to be with you. Um, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna just share a, a very brief reminder of kind of what we're doing here for those who are now tapping in but didn't join session one. And I'll probably stop doing that uh, as we get to session three next week, but the brief reminder is um, we are connected the lamid we are connecting the lamid tet malachot in three different um, ways. There is the obvious Lametet Malachot of Shabbat, the framework, the traditional framework for how we think about Shabbat practice. Then there's the, that which is connected directly to the Lametet Malachot of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, and um, what was, how that was built. And then the bigger leap, um, but, but a clear leap that we laid out last time, and we could talk more about that after if, if anyone has questions about it, is the Lametetet Malachot. Um, the malacha that, that, that God, so to speak, um, used to create the world. Um, however, we understand that, perhaps not as a historical or scientific reality, but as a moral, spiritual enterprise. So that's what we're doing. And so we're looking at the lametet, which means 39, malachot, and we're looking at um, just what they mean on a technical level. But then as a jump-off point philosophically for what they can meet on a deeper level, and um, uh, in terms, you know, philosophically, and what they can mean uh, on a society level. And so the way we've kind of been doing this, or the way we did it last time, at least, is I'm going to make a presentation about 10 to 15 minutes, and then we'll open up the floor for questions, thoughts, pushback, agreement, whatever the case is. Got it? Okay, good, good, good. By the way, I just want to state, we have a whole diverse crew here. We have observant Jews. We have secular Jews, every type of Jew in between. We have Gentiles. We have philosopher types um, who are interested in the analysis. We have those who don't want the philosophical analysis, but want something practical and inspirational. So we've got a range of folks here, and bring who you are to this, because this is, this is a, a big tent, an inclusive space for whatever you want to bring to it. Okay? So last week, we talked about Zoraya which means seeding, seeding. Anything that helps a seed to grow. Um, And if you missed that, there's the recording, which is available both on the VBM website and on my website and on social media. And today is Choresh. Choresh is not one of those words that we obviously know, like Tikkun Olam or Tzelem Elokim or something, but Choresh means plowing, plowing. When one digs into the earth, one loosens the soil, and we make the land more fertile for planting crops or flowers or trees. And this is one of the first 11 malachot, which deals with the creation, the growing of herbs, which are both needed for the dyes, and for the growing of the wheat, which is used for the bread in the tabernacle. Okay? Now, this is not just, oh, it's out of touch, it's archaic, we used to think agriculturally, and now we don't, and so this lametet is kind of a thing of the past. Rather, what we're suggesting here is that the agricultural experience is still fundamental to the human, not to mention the animal uh, world, um, and ought to be relevant how we think about our food sources, and that we should reconnect with nature. Um, And our relationship to the earth. Okay, so this is Choresh. The other way we call Choresh is Harisha. harisha, Okay, for those interested in the Hebrew, although we'll mostly stay in the English. So the main purpose of plowing, of course, is um, done in farming in order to turn over the top layer of the soil to bring up fresher nutrients to the surface, right? So the, the earth dries up up top, and maybe there's some farming-type folks here who can share even more detail when we get to the conversation. But we want to turn it over to get the nutrients which are deeper down uh, and, turn, and, and turn that soil. Um, we, but on a deeper level, what we're talking about here is that we do an act that is about going below the surface of the physical world as we know it. And by plowing deeper into reality, we can discover nutrients, that can nourish our physical and our spiritual planting, the efforts that we're committed to each day. If we remain only on the surface level of the earth and of reality, we can experience decay and we can lose access to our deeper life source. Okay, so on this first point, um, we don't know what we're going to dig, we don't know what we're gonna find when we dig below the surface. So let's consider political philosopher John Rawls and his Veil of Ignorance exercise. John Rawls of Harvard University, Um, he suggested we should imagine our moral decisions such that we do not know where our decisions will lead us, such as like the game, the musical chairs. I don't know what chair I'm going to end up in when the music stops. Will it be the chair where I'll make $2,000 a year? Will it be the chair where I make half a million dollars a year? Will it be the chair where we'll be perceived um, as someone with white skin, someone with black skin? Will I be a Jew? Will I be a Muslim? Where will I be when I sit down in the in the chair, the lottery of life? And in exploring our moral imaginations, we start to wonder what it might be like to be reborn into a different group as a citizen or as undocumented, as a man or as a woman, as a person with disabilities, or a person who, um, who has an able body. Um, indeed, below the surface of how society operates, there's unjust systems. There's human biases. There is a lottery. We might understand that lottery as scientific randomness. We might understand the lottery as divine plan. But how did we end up where we are? As if we look at ourselves and who we are in the world, how did I get here? Harisha, Harisha, the second of the Lama Tamalachot, we dig deeper to see what is really going on below the surface. So what happens when we dig deeper into the human mind and into human experience? Will we discover something that can't be expressed or measured? Galileo saw the world around him, and he wanted to know more, as what we typically call the founder of modern science, Western science. So he begins to develop a quantitative vocabulary for human existence. But he also acknowledged when he developed the hard sciences that consciousness is something that can't be measured in physical terms. He specifically left consciousness outside the realm of hard sciences. So consciousness poses a challenge to our study of the brain, because the brain today, we want to look at neuroscience. Um, And yet, we understand that there may be something, is there something of a mind, not to mention a soul, that goes beyond the brain? For some, the answer is clearly not. The brain is everything. And what we can see in the brain will tell us everything. If not now, then soon. Others think there's something like a mind, which Galileo himself understands there to be a realm of human consciousness that goes beyond what can be measured in the brain. And so neuroscience, of course, is crucial, but it may have its limits, as does every hard science. And so some believe that physical science will eventually have this breakthrough moment when we can see or measure consciousness. But Galileo specifically, not that he's the end-all be-all, he's centuries ago, specifically approached physical science as excluding consciousness for a reason. Scientific understanding of the brain has the ability to show correlation but not causation. So this is to say that if part of the brain becomes activated by a certain type of stimulus, we see there's a correlation involved as to why it's being activated, but we still may not know the cause that can explain why the person is having the experience they have or what caused the brain to be activated where it was. Exactly. So here we need consciousness. So consciousness, we might suggest, is at the core of human identity, the core of human values. We live not just in an objective realm of tangible objects, but rather the intangible subjects that occupy our minds such as emotions, values, perceptions, our perception of perceptions, our perceptions of the perceptions of the perceptions of the perceptions, depending on how spiritually woke we are, so to speak. But today, there are prominent voices, in my view, mostly nonsensical, that suggest we only need to talk about facts, not feelings, as if the former is objective and real, and the latter is flimsy and made up. The reali- but the reality is not so simple. Whether what happens in our minds consists of a Cartesian self-definition or a postmodern articulation of mindfulness, we can understand it as an aspect of what it means to be human. We can undertake the digging represented by harisha, this plowing below the surface, in an effort to excavate the limits of our, a human, of our humanity. We need harisha, the plowing, we need to dig deeper into human consciousness to explore the depths of our reality. This digging will help us to navigate the furrows that seem to separate the physical world that we believe, we perceive, and the spirituality that we might experience. Now here, we might understand that those who operate on the surface level, and here I really believe this is on the far right, the far left, anywhere in between. This is not a political statement. Those who operate on the surface level of reality and trying to change the world may cause more harm than do good. When they don't see below the surface the humanity, the consciousness, the intentionality, the values that are at stake, they can end up burning people and burning causes in the interest of fighting what is on the surface level of reality. Now, there's our rainbow, thank you, AJ. Three components are needed for a rainbow to exist. This is an old debate, we'll get back to the tree in the forest in a moment. Three components are needed for a rainbow to exist. Sunlight, rain, and a conscious eye at the correct geometric location. It is the human being that is necessary for a rainbow's existence, not merely the sunlight and the rain. But it's also true that there's countless rainbows around us if we were merely to reposition ourselves, reposition our eyes. Similarly, does a tree falling in the forest Make a no- noise if no, one is here to he- if no one is there to hear it. This is not just one of those college conversations that you spend all night talking about where everyone comes to a clear conclusion. Um, that of course it does. Of course the tree falls. Of course it makes noise. You don't need me there. But actually, scientists say the answer is no. Noise needs a subject to be a noise. Human subjectivity is required for objectivity to exist at all. Dr. Robert Lanza, professor at Wake Forest University, writes, When studying subatomic particles, the observer appears to alter and determine what is perceived. The presence and methodology of the experimenter is hopelessly entangled with whatever he he is attempting to observe and what results he gets. An electron turns out to to be both a particle and a wave. But how, and more importantly, where such a particle will be located remains dependent upon the very act of observation itself. Okay. Now, let's go back to Shabbat. The philosophical basis of Shabbat is freedom, freedom. Not only is Shabbat connected to the exodus from Egypt, objective freedom, but also to the creation of the world, subjective freedom. In regards to the latter, we deal with free will, the creation of the human experience. We can start and stop, and our stopping on Shabbat, in whatever way we choose to stop, is not controlled by the government ideally, um, not controlled by profit motive, not controlled by the century we can live not. in, oh, by the, by, oh, can we, can we uh, mute folks until it's the conversation? Thank you. It, it, our freedom is not controlled by the location we live in or by our mood. By embracing Shabbat in whatever, um, whatever way we embrace it, we are engaged in a subversive act of freedom. We choose to stop regardless of any cultural factors. It is a volitional and an intentional reclaiming of our freedom. We have moral agency when we embrace Shabbat amidst no short of of opportunities to choose something else. We can engage in a plethora of activities. Determinism, which is of course rapidly on the rise today, argues that all of human psychology can be contained within the hard sciences. Shabbat argues we have a soul, indeed an extra soul on Shabbat, the neshama y'tehrah, that transcends the physical boundaries of the self. The ability to embrace Shabbat, however that might look for us, is morally important because we suffer when our inner lives are out of touch with our outer lives. This misalignment leads to alienation. As an alternative, through spiritual attunement, or as um, one of our teachers writes, sacred attunement, we work to line up reality as we know it with reality as we experience it. Before we can plant seeds of potentiality, before we can receive insight, we need to dig down and go inwards and create inner space to, to see anew. Okay, last few minutes here, then I'm going to open it up. Charisha, plowing. Also gives gives a nod to the peaceful utopia to come. As we have all heard many times, and whether we love the UN, hate the UN, somewhere in between, as it says on the wall at the Isaiah wall across from the UN, where I used to lead protests um, almost every few months outside the UN for various reasons, the prophet says, both in Micah, um, which is my middle name in Hebrew, Shmuel Micha, and Isaiah which is, I guess, my, our, our, one of our child's names, Shaya. Um, it says, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift sword up against nation, neither shall they learn war no more. That the utopia, the messianic age, whether we understand that to be a change in, um, in the cosmic reality, the human in human nature, or merely human nature um, as we know it, a world as we know it, but with um, with, a, with a nonviolent orientation um, by whatever political system we finally worked out to uh, attain that, um, is a nonviolent reality. And they talk there about beating our swords into plowshares. This is kharisha. This is the kharisha. This is the plowing that we're talking about here. Um, where we put down weapons and we instead do plowing. We go beneath the surface of reality to get to a deeper truth. Rabbeinu Bachia, the 13th century Spanish rabbi, wrote that a crucial part of human success is to set the stage economically through toil to enable spiritual life. Here he specifically rates this process to plowing the earth. Get ready for this language. People are involved with takanot ha'olam, Takanot Ha'olam, he says, Takanot Ha'olam is plowing and harvesting and buying and selling and the other activities people do for Yeshuv Ha'olam, maintaining human habitation of the natural world. So Tikkun Olam, we sometimes think, oh, 20th century reform invention, which means fit my political orientation into, 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 into repairing the world, which is an unfair critique, not only politically an unfair critique, but historically an unfair critique, because tikkun olam, ta'keno we see Rabbeinu Bachi on 13th century Spain, who knew nothing of what we talk about today um, in America in terms of justice, using that in relationship to plowing and harvesting. Building the world, developing the world, cultivating the world, spiritually going deeper below the surface is a repair of the world, which is on the surface level. Now here, friends, I I want to remind us, if you've been with me before, you know I say this often, tikkun olam is is connected to tikkun LeM repairing the world is connected to repairing the hidden dimensions. If we again, if we try to repair the surface level, we can cause more harm. We have to repair what's below the surface by building relationships, developing allyship, being charitable in how we interpret other people and their own experience um, and um, and learning to hold multiple perspectives at once. Some people today, um, regardless of their economic status, their race, their religion, their country, want to hold only their own experience and not other experiences. But empathy tells us we have to hold multiple experiences. There's not one fight to fight. There's many fights going on. And we have to hold a container of empathy for for different people coming from very different places. That's not easy to do. That's not easy to do. And many people across the spectrum want to hold one narrative of what the world is and are willing to burn a lot of bridges in the process of holding only one narrative. And so this is difficult work, but I want to tell us the alternative. The alternative is the Rashbi. Who is the Rashbi? The Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, um, whose who's, uh, neshama ascends on my, on my uh, wedding anniversary, uh, Lagba Omer, which is a very common day to get married. Um, the Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, who is the author of the Zohar. Well, let's not call him the author because we know it's written later. But let's say spiritually he is the uh, forefather of the Zohar, the great um, Kabbalistic work. The rash bee goes into the cave, fleeing persecution. The Romans want to kill the Jews. So he hides in the cave. And then, and then after he studies the Zohar, so to speak, with his son in the cave, he comes out. And he sees, what are the people doing? They're plowing. They're plowing, they're doing harisha. The people out there are working the farms. And he can't believe it. He says, you get one life? You get one life in this world? And you're going to spend your time trying to make money? You're going to spend your time farming when you can be studying the holy Zohar? He starts shooting fireballs at the people, and the voice emerges, the bat call emerges, the divine voice emerges, the angelic forces emerge. Get back in the cave. You're not ready. If you truly understood Kabbalah, you don't use it to burn other people. The Kabbalah expands your heart. It deepens your, your reality such that um, you feel love for people, even people living differently from you, even those who don't want an ascetic an ascetic ideal, like you don't want to just live in a cave. Um, they want to they work. They want to make money. They want to take care of their families. They might even want to be wealthy. You don't try to burn those people. You try to understand them and be in relationship with them also. So here's my closing thought, and we're going to open it up. Ultimately, harisha, plowing, is about work, physical and spiritual, work that allows us to get beneath the surface. We, each of us can go deeper in our consciousness on a personal level, our own human psychology, our own spiritual work. But also we can act as, in, as individuals, but as a collective when we go deeper into societal problems that confront us on a collective level. Only by going deeper can we reach a truer existence of reality, which ought to lead us not only to a deeper intellectual understanding, a more spiritual inter- interconnectivity, and a deeper personal um, empathy and gentleness of compassion of how we engage with others and with the world so that's what i want to say about harisha so um, let's unmute folks and if you don't want to speak please mute yourself again and i would love to hear questions thoughts agreements disagreements whatever you'd like to share thank you for that hi rabbi can you hear me yes who's that that's, uh, this is Talia. What's your last name? Talia Lair. Oh, good. I was hoping that was you. Good. Nice to see you. Yeah. Nice to see you. So so I have a question. I'm trying to make the connection in my mind because I
2: I read a little bit that the melachot are uh, forbidden acts to do on Shabbat. So what is the connection here between the
0: forbidden
3: act of plowing and uh, what you're explaining about going... Lying
0: within beneath the surface. Oh, okay, wonderful. Thank you for that, Talia. Um, and 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 I am specifically in a pluralistic framework, avoiding the language of prohibition, because there are those who ex- on this call who experience the Lamed Tet as prohibitions who relate to halakha or Jewish tradition such that they refrain from things on Shabbat within such a framework. That's my personal activity, but I'm I'm kind of calling them Shabbat frameworks. Um, because there's going to be a different relationship to those on the call, um, but 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 the way I'm the way I'm sharing this is that to refrain from certain types of physical work on Shabbat can help us to reflect on that type of work on a physical level and a spiritual level, so we return to it refreshed and renewed. So to give another example, my read of a fast day is not that we. Um, ought to be angels, ascetic angels, who should ideally remove ourselves from food. Food is good, eating is good, but we pause from eating in order that we return to more ethical, spiritual eating. Um, uh, Shabbat is a time to say that the Shabbat existence is not the ideal, but it actually enables us to step back so that we can um, return renewed and refreshed. Let me give another, another example, sexual activity within a trusting, loving relationship. Um, my understanding both whether someone embraces, you know, NIDA or someone embraces just the obvious of during a menstruation period of uh, being on a, on, a, on, a, on a sexual break, whatever types of sexual breaks that partners have in place, the point is not that sex is bad. Um, the point is that sex in, in a loving, trusting, mutual relationship is a good thing. And has the potential to be a very beautiful thing, but a break enables us to return to that with more dignity, more um, uh, more respect, more um, fill in the blank <laughs> of how we return to our sexual relationships. So too that w- that that a break, a Shabbat break, the um, whether someone just turns off their phone, whether someone engages in a different type of prayer activity, whether somebody doesn't garden their you know work their garden on that day, that that the goal there being. um a um, a new intellectual and spiritual perspective
1: talia is that helpful at all yes it is i understand what you're
2: saying okay Uh, okay great kind of the mirror of abstaining and reflecting
3: of what we are abstaining from uh that space gives us the opportunity to do that
0: Mm -hmm. as i understand it was the word you used mirror yes oh it's interesting i've been thinking about this phrase mirror image Mm -hmm. most commonly the frame that phrase mirror image is used to mean it's it's identical right you're looking in the mirror at yourself but mirror image in um i think the more philosophical phrase is used to mean identical but upside down it's like a mountain in the reflection in the water Right. You see the yeah, mountain like water just but the, the mountain pure refle-
3: reflection.
0: Yes. yes, yeah, the reflection backwards. And so the mm-hmm. mirror image, we talk about Yaakov and asav being mirror image in that they came from the same place, have the same background, but they end up radically different. Or talk mm-hmm. about Yitz Greenberg and Mayor Kahana. Yitz Greenberg and Mayor Kahana both end up being modern Orthodox rabbis from the same institutions with very similar fundamental orientation, but Yitz Greenberg becomes a universalist, and and Mayor Kahana becomes a racist, uh, white supremacist, uh, far right. Um, you know, um, there's more to say about that, but they are mirror image. And so how that relates to this conversation, I want to think more about in regards to uh, Shabbat and the weekday. In a sense, it's kind of, uh, yeah, the mirror image in that we're looking at the same activities, but we're trying to look at it from an upside down perspective. So thank you for that, Talia. That's helpful. Of course. My pleasure. Thanks.
2: Rabbi, um, you talked about your inner life and outer life. Would you say that your goal is to live in congruency?
0: Okay, so so wow, thank you for that, Eileen. I want to first just state that um in in the issue of transparency, because some might people some people might think, although uh, I, I'm sure a bunch of here don't think this, that rabbis are just all zenned out and have this total inner clarity. I want to share like I experience a lot of turmoil in my inner life these days, um, on a personal level, challenges in my family. You know, the challenge of the workplace, um, my own spiritual inadequacy, challenges in relationships. And so, um, as the world is in turmoil, economically, public health with the pandemic, um, um, th- that I also experience that within my own personal life, and that I'm I too, um, like I sup- I suspect many here am struggling, am struggling in in a, in a bunch of ways. Thankfully, my Jewish tools and spiritual tools are giving me coping mechanisms to, I wouldn't say flourish, I'm definitely not flourishing right now, but to survive. Um, and so, I'm sorry, in all of that, Eileen, I missed your specific question about inner life, outer life. You're on mute still. Sorry, you're on mute. You're still on mute. AJ, got to take her off maybe. Yeah, Okay.
2: Thanks. Would you consider congruency to be the goal?
0: Okay, say more about what you mean by congruency here. I think I know, but congruency I want to be sure.
2: Congruency would be living your outer life to align with your inner life. Oh,
0: okay, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Wow, I mean, that's a huge subject. Um, and uh, I'll just offer one reflection because we could have a whole session just on that, which is just really complicated. And part of the way I want to reflect on that is going back to this issue of spiritual consciousness as i say every day more than a political revolution we need a spiritual revolution more than just changing outer systems we need um, a radical spiritual revolution for people to hold more deeper empathy of more experiences now here's the problem do i want to live my life in accord with my deep inner truth or do i want to hold so many narratives and perspectives within me and trying to live a life In tune with all of those. For example, as a pluralist, I hold the Reformed Jewish um, ideology within me. As someone who practices a progressive orthodox life, I hold that within me. As a white person, I hold a black narrative within me, right? As a man, uh, but as as a feminist, I hold women's experience within me. Do I live my truth within my skin, within within my gender, within my I hear trans people say, I'm gonna live my truth as a trans person. Is that how I live? Do I live my truth as a straight male? Or do I live my truth holding a whole bunch of other truths and narratives within me? So the inner life and the outer life is very complicated when we're holding multiple narratives. I am a Jew, but do I hold my Christian mother's narrative within me? And how do I do that um, in a way that honors her and loves her, but also rejects Christianity as a, as a form of truth that I live by? I don't reject it as within the realm of pluralistic reasonab- reasonability. Um, but within the realm of uh, anything that I find spiritually compelling for myself. And so I, I, really, I just want to problematize, because that's not a real word, I just love the word, I want to problematize your question in a way that honors it rather than dismisses it by saying that I'm, I have no clue how to answer your question of congruency of inner life and outer life. What I, what I would say if I wanted to see something inspirational rather than actually resonates on my deepest level is yes, that we suffer when our inner life is out of touch with our outer life. Um, and so we need to find our inner truth and live that inner truth and every day work for deeper spiritual clarity to know who am I, what am I in this world for? What am I here to do and live that? So on the most basic level, I believe that to be true. And that, that's what I understand to be integrity. Integrity means you live what you know to be true. If I think something's true, how do I live that every day? How do I fight for that? How do I practice that? How do I put, how do I, how do I put that into my relationships. That, that's the work of Musar. Musar means taking what I know in my head and moving it into my heart, right? Intellectually, we know a lot of things. I know I should be patient with my children when they're, when they're asking 5 million times for more of this, more of that. And then I get snappy and I don't live that and I regret it so deeply and I can't sleep at night because I snapped at them that day and I feel horrible about it. I say something stupid on social media or somewhere else that I could have said so much better and then, I, and then it's hard to live with, right? Um, and so we constantly are doing that work of alignment, of alignment, so I'm sorry, that was a long-winded answer, but um, I hope that was in some way helpful.
2: Shmuley, I, uh, I'd like to speak, is that okay? Yes, Dr.
0: Fishbane, thank Mona you. Mona yes. Fishbane. Mona um, Fishbane.
2: Uh, as always, I love your teaching, it's just amazing. Oh, thank you. so I want to say a couple of things. One is I want to go back to uh, Bar Yochai. I am I, doing Dafyomi, and, I, and we came across that, that story about him coming out of the cave, or whatever, I read it, and it's like, he was so judgmental. He was so angry. Right. He was so purist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what you're talking about is that we need to be humble mm-hmm. uh, and own our interpretations, but be open. Family therapists talk about hold your theories lightly, right? Mm-hmm. So hold your identity lightly. You know who you are, but you're complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that having that humility is really important. I love your problematizing. I love your struggle. I think it's really honest. And I think that on the one hand, we want to be true to ourselves and on the other hand our cells are always changing and they're multiple selves and we want to be very modest about what we know i also think that as a straight white woman mm-hmm. um or for you you know a white man mm-hmm. um it's different than let's say a trans person or a black mm-hmm. person
4: mm-hmm.
2: who's who isn't permitted to own their identity doesn't have the privilege mm-hmm. necessarily that that you or i might have so I just want to throw that
0: into the mix as well. Mm, love that. I love all that. Thank you. Uh, uh, there's so much to put on the table. I'll just offer one reflection in response to that, although um, it's not necessarily even needed. And, and, and that, that last bit is really, is really powerful too. To what does it mean to sort of own your identity, to have the privilege to do that in various ways? Um, because in some ways, I like to talk about how um, invisibility erases somebody, but also visibility puts one at risk also. Um, if I'm a trans person, being invisible erases me, but being visible puts me at risk. And so there's a lot to say there. And but here's something else I want to respond to, because I think your point about moral, moral, pu- moral purity is so powerful. That again, I think across the, the political spectrum, we see a rage of moral purity today that leads to an absolutism that burns people, and I think it's really dangerous. And I think that Judaism tells us to push back against that. And I, I used to say something oversimplistic. I used to say. Theologically, I am um, a uh, pluralist, and morally, I'm more on the, I'm more absolutist, which is to say skepticism is more healthy in that which we don't know, but morally, we can and must come to conclusions and be less. Um, and so on the spectrum of skepticism, on one end, relativism, where there's nothing true, and on the other realm of pluralism, where everything has truth, um, that, that um, we find ourselves in a more in a more gray area. And so, I, so thank you for that. We can hold our identity and theories more lightly. I want to, I want to leave, I'll leave with that. Someone else, please. Uh,
3: hi, Shmuley. This is hi. Caitlin Kolasar. Hi. Hi, Caitlin. Hi. Um, one thing that you were talking about with the inner identity and outer identity um, made me think, I, I used to teach a course on mythology for high school, uh-huh. yeah. and we covered a lot of different belief systems around the world, including uh, Hinduism. And one thing that's always stuck with me with Hinduism is that there's, uh, there is an inner self and an outer self, and there's a veil in between. And the veil is illusion, it's Maya. And, uh, you know, in connecting those two worlds you know those two uh, versions of yourself it's also a version of divinity and there's a balance there and there's a truth there when those two connect and you know breaking down that veil and finding that truth mm-hmm. is kind of what uh, at least in hindu thought is uh, the mission of every person and that's mm-hmm. when you reach that enlightenment is is uh lifting that veil and finding that balance and so mm-hmm. i just wanted to offer that as an extra thing to think about
0: I love that. You know, one of the things that that reminds me of, although it's saying something different, but tell me if it's close enough. There's a lot of Hasidic Hasidic stories about entering the palace of the king. So, you know, the the dwelling place with God. And it talks about how basically those walls are all um, false walls that we have to journey to this city and that village and then knock through this door and get through that gatekeeper to get into the inner palace of God. But actually those walls are illusions that we have to take down. Um, And we are actually already standing in the room, the dwelling place of God, if we could merely break down those walls. Is that saying something similar to what you're offering?
3: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, the the point that's always stuck with me is that, you know, that it is there. You are there, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's just about getting rid of those illusions and letting the inner self and the outer self Mm -hmm. merge and allowing you to you know, be yourself and be connected to everything yeah. simultaneously. Yes.
0: Great. I love it. I love it. And I just want to, again, problematize the aspect of what this means for life partnerships and what this means for allyship. It's so, it's such hard work to just be spiritually enlightened oneself, this inner life, outer life. But then how do you get attuned with someone else? What's there, what's happening in their inner life? What commitments are they making in their outer life? Um, that's so hard just in, in parenting. That's hard in a life partnership. But then when you're talking about your Jewish community, then when you're talking about other communities that have a whole different framework in Jewish-Muslim dialogue or something else, you try to like understand each other, very difficult stuff. Okay, thank you, Caitlin. Someone else?
5: Billy. Uh,
1: yes, uh, hi, Professor Allen, hi. Uh,
5: I, I, one thing I, I really, uh, I wanted to ask you to, expand on a little bit more is the violence of swords into plowshares. Uh-huh. Um, so on the one hand, it's an image of peace and, and, of uh, you know, sort of content perpetual peace is, is one of the ways that we up, uptake that in producing the United nations. But the corresponding piece of that is I think the, the sense in which plowing too is a violence digging beneath is a violence. Turning up the soil is a violence. Uh, Faulkner writes in uh, *Go Down Moses* about um, the question of what makes for ownership of a piece of land, and he thinks about it in terms of the violence of tilling, of plowing. Um, and uh, and I wonder if if part of you know. So one of the things that I that I really get out of your teachings is this sense uh, of Shabbat as a way of uh, uh, holding these these uh, aspects of making these aspects of creation um, and and sort of attuning ourselves to those as as sort of profound pieces of ourselves that are things that we renew and i wonder though if at the same time there's also a kind of a, a, an, a, an invitation to be critical of those pieces of ourselves those you know so that when we are refraining from purush we're not just refraining from making it possible to plant, we're also refraining from the violence against against the soil uh, Okay, so by so, turning the swords into posture.
0: Ira, can, can you flesh out for folks, because it might not still be obvious, what you mean by violence in this sense? Oh, so, um, AJ, can we, uh, there we go, somebody just took themselves off
6: mute. Yeah,
0: um, but, yeah. yeah we, like, like right now I'm reading, and I know this is a controversial name to some folks, but I like to read all kinds of things. I'm reading Judith Butler's new book on, on violence and how violence can be understood. And violence is like, a, a, you know, an, an idea that means more than a human physically striking a human. Um, and maybe yeah. you can understand systems of violence, uh, uh, help us understand systems of violence.
5: Yeah, yeah. So like whether it's at the level, so if you just start with swords into plowshares, mm-hmm. one way of thinking about what's at stake there is cool, no more swords, no more uh, hitting each other with, with weapons that have been created to kill people. Which is what a sword is. We turn it into uh, a weapon that uh, 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 a a tool that's meant to uh, till the earth. Oh,
0: he froze. I think Ira, you're you're frozen. Let's give him a second. See if he comes back. Sorry, everybody. Um. Okay, let's assume he's frozen, and yeah. let's move on. Oh, Ira, you oh Ira, you just came back. You were frozen.
5: Oh hey hey sorry. Uh, so when we when we when we till the earth, mm-hmm. there's there's a way in which we're uh, forcing the earth into new patterns of being,
4: and ah. that's like
5: in simple ways, like with the with the earthworms who who inhabit this space, who are actually engaged in their own processes of tilling, so to speak. Um, but but really much more, we're taking the world as it is, and both in the literal sense and in the metaphorical sense you're talking about in terms of turning up deep structures in society or deep structures in ourselves, we're taking the surface of things and we're saying, no, you cannot be as you are, you must be other. And we're doing that with uh, essentially a coercive implement, which I think is, to me anyways, is that's how I read that that moment in Micah. The, the, the correspondence to the peacefulness of swords into plowshares is that plowshares also have a violence to them. And, and so I was wondering if it's worth thinking about Khoresh as also attuning to the unavoidable, the helpless violence of even our peacefulness, of even our our, our activities to increase uh, uh, life have to them, and, and if you think about that at the level of social transformation, if the thing gets even easier, right? Like if we wanna say, let's get to the deep structures of society, somebody like me who's doing basically okay at the surface of society uh, might actually have to do a little worse, might have to. And that has to be, if I'm going to plow deeper, if I'm going to renew the soil of the social, that almost has to be okay with me. And I wonder if the, the, the attuning to the violence of plowing then through chodesh through refraining from chodesh on shabbos is is maybe a way of like uh, aligning myself with that possibility of what's at stake even for me even as a potential subject of violence uh in social transformation
0: yeah awesome does someone else want to respond to that thank you for that does anyone else want to respond to that can i
7: just say a few words yeah please so okay so in some parts i understand the idea of like, I think when we think of Shemitah, and the yovel,
0: Yes, right. Okay.
7: So, that, so that is mamash, a true um, stopping of what you may or may not consider violence and plowing. I, I see plowing hmm. in all the miller more as, as creativity and not really a violence. But yeah, it is disturbing the earth and the earth does need a rest. And of course, Jewishly, we give the rest on, uh, on the Shemitah year. And I, I've lived in Israel for a long time. So then you become like really, really aware, although it's a pain in the, you know what, to follow Shemitah, um, you become very, very aware of of the the cycles and the cycles of one another Shemitah years coming up and before Shemitah and the after Shemitah. But um, to me, that's like the the time we rest. Shabbat is more um, a stopping from the creativity of the world. I see it, you know, I was interested by the mirror idea but I see it more as the footprint idea like the what's not there right if you see a footprint you can imagine the foot that was there so it's a negative it's a negative image it's the absence of what was there to me Shabbat is like the absence of the milacha you can consider them you can concentrate on them um, but it's the peace from the creativity and giving yourself just to Chance to almost like meditate on that absence, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes Thank any you, sense. thank
0: you. Yeah, thank you. Okay, I'll just offer one suggestion, and then we'll open it back up. Um, uh, which is that, um, you know, I think part of the assumption here is that work is oppressive. Work ought to bring dignity, but work for the majority of the global population is oppressive. Every you don't want to go. The, the assumption is you don't want to go to work. You don't want to have a boss, or you don't want to have a board. You don't want to have to please customers or have to please funders, right? There, you are constantly in kind of a little bit of an oppressive system yeah. where you lose your freedom. Freedom means I'm going to go in my car and go for like, okay. hike in the, I'm going to go hike in the mountains where I'm accountable to nobody. Accountability is in some ways um, <laughs> oppressive. Um, I have to answer. I have to do something I don't want to do. And so that's true for the land. That's true for animals. That's true for humans. And so I think the assumption there is that Shabbat is a release of that oppression for the animal, for the land, and for the worker. Um, and that that Shabbat represents that utopia to come, um, where there's an absolute dignity. And, and Ira brings up an interesting point, that the sword is not eradicated. The sword is, um, uh, becomes a plowshare, where there is this, um, this form of violence that is done, d- done, done to the earth. And I think one of the Jewish assumptions is that um, that being a partner with the divine means we do want to change nature. And so we want to raise the question, is that necessarily violent to change something's nature? Um, you know, there is this trend today to say that things should be naturally what they are. And yet there's this other Jewish strand that says things can be more elevated than their nature. Malaminateva, things can go beyond their nature. This is normally explained through a certain concept, which I'll preface to say is, is morally complicated today, politically complicated today. But bris mila, circumcision is on day eight which comes the day after the natural cycle of seven, which is to say you go beyond your nature. The, the, the way it's explained in sources, and again, this will be problematic to some and beautiful to others perhaps, is that the baby boy is not yet perfect. He, he is a work in process, and the bris mila is an act of human partnership with the divine to try to change the nature of, of the human being. Um, and so there's a lot to say about that. Um, but one, one last thing, and then I'll open it up again, and I want to, you know, be mindful of our time, which, again, will normally be shorter, but, um, but at the most will be an hour, which is 13 minutes from now, which is to say that um, I think a lot of the Jewish sources, and again, I'm overgeneralizing by Jewish sources because there's different eras and different ideologies, but I think, think of, both in Musar and in Hasidut, think about emotions as something that can't be destroyed. The emotions can't be destroyed they can be refined they can be held they can be channeled um but w- for example we don't take a violent impulse and destroy it and become a non-violent being but rather we channel the violent impulse towards something more productive um, one example is um the flood story the flood story was explained by many as um, humans have a violent impulse. And so take out your bloodthirst upon an animal instead of on a human. Go become a shokhet and and kill the animal um, because um, that way you'll get out your thirst. Now, this is problematic because a lot of studies in psychology I've read show that the expression of of an emotion actually solidifies it more deeply rather than releases it. This idea of go punch a pillow to get out your anger actually has the potential to foster anger rather than merely release it. Okay, lots to say about that. But so too, the idea of go kill an animal that's going to release the anger might be a problem also. But this idea here of go plow the earth to get rid of that tendency to use a sword um, might actually not resolve that issue at all. On a consequential level, what we do to the earth and on an intrinsic, on an on a human experience level of what we're actually trying to release. Thank you, thank you, Ira. Someone
4: else. Hi, Shmuley. Um, it's Brett. And hey, Brett. <laughs> first of all, belated happy birthday. I, I love you. this project. I, I love you. this uh, <laughs> this idea. It's fantastic. Um, Thanks, Brett. Just a, a quick thought, and it's really only a half-formed thought about what Ira was was saying. Um, I love this idea that he had that the, the, the sword isn't gone. It's, mm-hmm. it's transformed because I think in a way you can use either of these tools to get to the same place if you use them properly. In other words, in both cases, they could be used for revolutionary purposes. The sword, obviously, um, but the plowshare, maybe more literally, you're, you're literally turning over earth and you're taking what was on the bottom and you're putting it on top and what was on the top is now going to the bottom and Mm -hmm. so i think you you could look at this as sort of a a revolutionary act in as opposed to an evolutionary act. You're, you're speeding up potentially whatever process was there something was growing there perhaps slowly could come into being but you're speeding up the process and you're making it possible for there to be maybe more more of an output so mm-hmm. if we think about that in terms of now, this, this metaphor that we were talking about, maybe mm-hmm. the same thing is is true of us internally. Um, I think you have to have some sort of a teleological framework if you want to think of it this way, and I know that that's potentially problematic, but if maybe there's some place we're going to, some mm-hmm. better place where we can be better people, where our society can be better, this act of, of internal plowing um, maybe gets us there quicker or, or, or moves us along uh, in, about, in a faster way.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Brett. That's, that's so much to say there. I'll just offer one thing um, around this per- Since you brought up uh, uh, teleology, I, I, I think the phrase you used was teleological, right? Okay, good. Yeah. So, so one thing to say there, like, is the earth an ends in itself or does the ends have a purpose that humans decide? Um, and so does it have a teleology that the purpose of the earth is to grow stuff and the stuff that we want? because it's a human-centric and anthropocentric universe. And so we want to use the earth to fulfill its purpose as we understand it, which is to grow. Um, that's an interesting question. And I think an important question for our time where anthropocentrism is so, um, can be so destructive in how we think of animals and how we think of the earth and the like. And, and one other thing, do we think of a woman struggling with infertility do we think of a fertility treatment that might, so to speak, change her hormonal composition or the like as an act of violence? Now, um, or do we think of that as an act of love, which increases her fer- fertility? If the earth is to be fertile um, and we want to help it become more fertile, is that an act of kindness or an act of exploitation? Um, so, too, if uh, if a woman chooses on her own, obviously, if it's thrust upon herself to be more fertile, that she should be forced to have eight children when she doesn't want to, that she's a machine for procreation, that's obvious. But in the, in the case where she chooses um, to want to be more fertile um, and to adjust her sort of current natural disposition, um, how do we think of such a moment? So, Brett, I appreciate you bringing that, that, that the teleology. And by the way, Maimonides, Maimonides actually breaks away um and uh and actually says that everything is created for its own sake not for the sake of the of the human experience so there's a lot to say there okay we have uh, 7 minutes left here hi rabbi
6: biller go ahead hey, so uh another this is also half baked um but That's maybe yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe any act of creation is an act of violence hmm. you know if you think of an acorn it has to explode itself in oh. order for that tree to grow oh. And so this just hit me that maybe God was sorry, was doing an act of violence on all that tohu and bohu that was already oh. floating around. And so after six days, God steps back from the violence of creation also as a way to rethink it. And uh, so the plowshare and the plowing is, is also, it's a kind of violence, but it's not a killing violence. It's a violence that we... Want to learn this?
0: Okay, awesome. I'm so glad you brought that up because I want people to push back on this. But I've been thinking a lot about this of how we create in a way that's not violent. Let me suggest a few thinkers. Although I hate dropping names when you can't unpack it because it's like a name dropping that's so complex. It's uh, and then you stay on the surface level again. But let's just. I'm not. So I'm not going to say Freud. I'm just going to say Darwin. Darwin's understanding of evolution is violent. The old dies off to make way for the new. Now the way I understand Kabbalah and actually Jewish tradition at large, is, is an attempt to have nonviolent creation where the old continues to exist peacefully with the new. Someone might, um, in a Hegel, let's bring Hegel, for example, and Rav Cook loves Hegel. Hegel says there's thesis an antithesis and a war of violence, and then you get the synthesis, right? That, that the old gets into a war, and then there's a revolution, and then there's the new, right? And there's a lot to say about that in various schools of thought. Around the violence that happens to produce a new reality that's seemingly more peaceful, until that new reality also breaks down and there's a new violence, the war upon 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 the next group, um, that that each revolutionary group eventually gets power, or then also is corrupt, and does their own act of violence. And so the idea of Jewish tradition, I understand, of holding tradition and progress, is not shaming the past. Um, and, but actually holding the past, and this is also true for human development. We don't do violence to our past to try to destroy our past narrative of the self, our self-identity. We hold on to our two-year-old self. We hold on to our, our 13-year-old self. We hold on to the past pain, the past reality, and there it is still intrinsically a part of us. We don't dismiss it or destroy it. We don't do violence to our past self. We hold the old with the new. So... Um, The harisha doesn't look to destroy the top layer of soil. It looks to keep it in there, but channel it, channel it, put it down at the bottom. It's going to be, it's going to be tossed up again, right? That we might frame this as, um, as a Jewish form of nonviolence potentially because it wishes to keep it all churning. Let's keep, let's keep the movement of ideas churning the the old with the new in relationship with each other. Okay. Five minutes left. Yes. Rabbi Biller. Yes. Follow up. Oh, you're on mute. I'm sorry, Rabbi, you're on mute. Okay, you're, uh, you're still on mute. Okay, you're back, you're back.
6: I'm glad you were sorry that I was on mute. Um, yeah. So, I was thinking of the image of the shards of the broken uh, uh, luchot going into the ark with the new. Yes, yes. And also, um, keeping all the minority opinions as we create Mishnah Thomas, yes. like keeping the old as we create the new.
0: I am so glad you you brought those up. Um okay and but I, so I'm I'm going to leave space let me actually see is there someone else who wants to say something i want to know if i should respond for 2 minutes or 5 someone else is there someone else who's eager to say something after i uh
2: I'd like to say something again okay, good. i spoke already
0: okay mo- okay okay good so thank and thank you for making space for others is, is there someone who hasn't spoken yet who also wants to contribute on this call okay um, oh, everyone's on mute, so I don't know if they're in, maybe put in chat, write in the chat if you did want to, and I'll start responding, and either it'll be Mona who responds next or someone else. Okay, so Rabbi Biller's comments there are really helpful uh, around this idea of the old um, um, alongside the new, and here, um, I don't want to conflate broken and whole with old and new, because that is not um, um Respectful or true to how we think of aging, um, that the aged are broken and the young are fresh. That's obviously not true. Um, however, in the in the in the pure, oh, actually, let me bracket that thought. That'll take me on a tangent. The broken luchot, as as most folks probably know here, are broken because of the Ego ha'zahav, the the golden calf, and so they're an embarrassment to us. They're an embarrassment because they were broken because we became idol worshippers right after leaving Egypt, and yet. We carry the broken luchot, the broken tablets with the Ten Commandments alongside the new ones um, to understand that our own brokenness comes along our, alongside our wholeness. Our own past, our own trauma comes alongside our healing, um, and our own um, moral mistakes accompanies our, our, moral, our moral growth. Then this other idea that Rabbi bailer brought up, the minority opinions, the Talmud quotes, the Gemara quotes the views that lose right? The Talmud is pluralistic in that it entertains various viewpoints and records various viewpoints, but it's also absolutist in that there's, an, there's a conclusion. They decide Hillel's right and Shammai's wrong. But why do they record the dissenting view, the minority view? Well, there's various views there, but one of the views, which I love the most, is that in a future era, that view might be resurrected. The view that lost Right, right. going back to the joke of last week, in the 22nd century, we may call the college, the campus institution, come have Shabbat dinner at Shammai instead of the Shabbat dinner at Hillel, because maybe in the new Zeitgeist, although Zeitgeist is a word you don't need to to use, uh, in the new Weltanschrang, this is also a word you don't need to use. um, It's just like a silly word where you can just say worldview. Uh, In the new worldview, we hold like Shammai and not Hillel. And so, um, but yes, this idea of keeping dissenting views alive rather than silencing them. Of course, all view- there are views, we should say, are beyond the pale. Views that are so extreme, we should actually remove them from the discourse, I think. Remove them from the discourse or not give them a platform um, because of their extremity. Others disagree and think everything should be freedom of thought. Um, I personally think there ought to be limits. Now, I mean, people can say whatever they want. They shouldn't be arrested for freedom of thought, but that the platforms that we hold, such as in the Jewish community, there ought to be views that we, d- we consider to be beyond the pale. Okay, Mona, you're, you'll have our closing thought here.
2: Thank you. Um, I I think that my understanding about the Malachot as I'm learning them is that it's not that there's a problem with the Malachot, with let's say Choresh, but that there's a balance between the workaday approach to Choresh and what we need to do on Shabbat. That Shabbat offers um, a, a balance. Right, so that we're let's look at cholish. I would view it more benignly than maybe we've been talking about. It, we're building, <laughs> we're planting. Yes. We have a we have a we have a an, a project, or we have a, a food that we're trying to cultivate. As a as a person who loves to garden and pull out weeds, I I feel like I'm actually taking care of Mother Nature. I'm not fighting Mother Nature when I do that, mm.
4: um,
2: and I'm building something beautiful and something constructive. On Shabbat, I stop, and I realize I come up against the limits of my ability uh. to create and my power. And for, and it, it, it cr- creates a sense of spiritual um, attunement and also humility. So I, I don't think it's either like Choresh is good or bad. I think it's that it's mm-hmm. a thing we do during the week. And, mm-hmm. and that's, I think, true of, of, of all the of Malachot, unless I'm misunderstanding. It w- mm-hmm. These things that were done for the, for, the, for the Mishkan were not bad. But dafka, because they were done for the Mishkan, we don't do them in our lives on Shabbat.
0: Yes. Okay. So, so nice. Thank you. And I love this, this phrase of limits because the, God is, is, is emulating and modeling the humility of limitations. Maimonides himself, although it sounds heretical, um, talks about divine hu- um, limitations. God cannot create another God. God cannot destroy God's self. God cannot replicate God's, God's self or create multiplicity. Um, and so this idea of divine limitations. Um, now, you might, now someone might frame it the opposite, that Shabbat is, is uh, divine actualization. It's a part of the flourishing model um, as opposed to modeling limitations. But what you frame there as human limitations, the humility of the human limits of creation, I think is so powerful. And so, friends, um, we're going to pause there. Um, I, as always, I welcome your feedback since this is only session two of 39, Um, and um, as always, you're welcome to stay for just the early presentation. You're welcome to stay for the dialogue after. I never want someone to feel like, oh, this is an hour. I thought it was going to be 15 minutes. Stay for as much or as little as you'd like, and um, please uh, always offer feedback. Have a wonderful day, and uh, wishing you lots of bracha. Thank you very much. In these difficult times, simcha, lots lots of joy.
4: Thanks, Rabbi.